For over 20 years, Howard Mann has transformed the lives of entrepreneurs by helping them bring their businesses back to life. But Howard didn't always have a clear perspective on business, whether it be his own or his clients. In the early 2000s, his logistics business was showing signs of decline and thin margins plus a recession were turning the business into a loss-making problem, despite the $114 million in turnover. In this episode, I talk to Howard about ego, mental health and his entrepreneurial wasted years, among many other insightful topics. I quote Howard on a weekly basis and his first book, Your Business Brickyard, is a favorite of mine. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. All right, Howard, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Um, and I'm going to dive right in by asking you to set the scene. Uh, what business are we here to talk about today? Um, when was this and how did it kind of inform the rest of your life? So I, I, this goes back a ways. I, I was running a mid-sized international logistics business, which I like to explain to people that we were travel agents for cargo. Uh, nice. We had about 150 employees in the U.S. Uh, across six offices and uh, 35, 40 agents around the world that were our partners. And uh, in the late 90s, it went through some very hard times during uh, – couple of recessions ago in the late 90s uh, when we were our competitors were sort of started to feed on each other which happens in a recession people get uh, uh, start diving for business uh, and we were a service business so we charged a fee for coordinating uh, a shipment coming in or out of the United States and arranging for its delivery we didn't own any trucks planes warehouses we just coordinated everything hence the travel agent analogy okay and uh, we went through, and I went through three very lonely, very stressful, very uh, fraught years uh, as the business shrunk, the revenue shrunk, uh, and battled all the way back to a point where we could sell it. And in January of 2000, uh, we sold it to a larger competitor uh, not as some incredible entrepreneurial glory moment, but as a, as a way to get out of it and to, for me to sort of get on with my life. Okay. Um, so I want to go into a bit more of the detail since it is so distant. I'm hoping you'll be comfortable, uh, giving us some numbers. So just prior to that three year dip that you were talking about, and we'll talk about that in more detail, how was the business doing in terms of revenue and profit? The business did very well. It was, a, you know, it did. It, it's a little misleading because there's a lot of lot of numbers thrown in there, but it was about 140 to 150 million dollar revenue business, um, doing, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars worth of profit. It really, at it, at its core, was a, maybe a twelve million dollar gross profit business. Um, and the tricky part about the business is that the margins were very, very thin always were very, very thin. The industry is a mar is an in industry where the margins are very thin. And uh, when anything bad happens in a thin margin business, the difference between profit and loss is is small and quick. And so that that is a, uh, something that has stuck with me for years about the value of not having large profit margins for greed, 
but having it as a um, a bigger safety net when things when there's shocks to the industry, when there's shocks to an economy, uh, thin margins really make you go from above the above water to underwater very very quickly. That's great. Um, the, uh, what comes to mind is that very popular saying at the moment um, when people are trying to disenfranchise the middleman that your margins are my opportunity. Um, and right. that's true when the margins are this big. It's not so true when you're Amazon and their defensible business model is 0% margin. Like, right. it's insane and smart. Um, okay, so the business, I mean, when you, it's so funny when you say midsize for, for many, many, many business owners around the world, 140 million in revenue is massive, not midsized. I mean, to give you context, I am um, an ex-South African entrepreneur. I'm now based in London and in South Africa, $140 million is nearly 2 billion rand. Like right. the context there's there a, is huge. There's a, there's a con there's, it's interesting because there's context here in terms of what, what I always thought our biggest issue was looking back on it mm -hmm. is within the context of our market and our competitors, we were, there were the huge competitors at the top of the market, the UPSs and FedExs and to some mm -hmm. extent back then DHL and things like that. And then there were a lot of very small uh, what we would say, you know, a mom and pop, but a small 10 person office. Mm. And, and I, looking back on it, I always felt that we were too small to be big, but, and too big to be small. So we were caught in a place where we had a lot of costs that couldn't, couldn't get rid of a lot of payroll. Um, and the bigger guys could always, uh, outprice us and the little guys could, could also outprice us because they, if they were desperate, they would just do it forever and their overhead was tiny. Uh, and mm. so it was an interesting place to be sort of squeezed in the middle. Um, and in, in the context of that industry, we were in this sort of middle, mid-range, uh, a nice business in good times and a business that is saddled with a ton of costs in hard times. Yeah. Um... Okay, so I'm interested in the just the practical understanding of what a client would go through to work with you. So they would get in touch with you and say, we've got something we want to import. Can you handle it for us? Will you walk me through that just so I have a better understanding of exactly yeah. what you're your So it want. wasn't, it was never a one-off. We, it was a, a business to business type of sale where, okay. uh, because uh, in the United States, and this, this is true most areas in the world, you need a, sort of a representative to represent you to U.S. Customs. Mm -hmm. to basically fill out a tax return for a shipment. Uh, and they can be, depending on the goods, they can be very, very complicated. Uh, and it, it sets up how much duty and tax is due for, for those goods that the, that the importer has to pay for. And to do it wrong is the equivalent of messing up your tax return. It doesn't work out well for you. Mm -hmm. So we, they would entrust us with a power of attorney to be their representative to U.S. Customs. And that was a, usually, you know, the bigger the client, the longer the sale where we, they would then entrust us, okay, you are our customs broker in the United States. And so take a client that I won uh, once, which was Beck Spear. They entrusted us with that. We handled every shipment that came in for uh -huh. Beck Spear, cleared it through customs and arranged to be delivered to a distribution center or whatever it was. Uh, and so you have a good relationship. It's a, it's a fiduciary relationship and you had to create a, um, you had to get through for them to effectively fire whoever they were using before. 
mm. and decide to use you for reasons that you had to convince them about. Okay, so that I'm glad I, I asked for that explanation because that helps me then frame how could that go bad? I mean, you've locked in B2B customers. It's like getting SAP software into a company. Once you're in, you're in. And moving off, the opportunity cost is just so massive. So talk me through now the start of that three-year decline, what surrounded it and how you ended up there. So when, when recessions hit, and I, and I, and I, this has happened with clients of mine since then, so it's, it's this cycle, is that everybody then starts to look for where they can save money. And they start with the biggest number first and sort of, it almost feels like they're working their way down a list. Hmm. And at some point they landed on us as a cost and they would then put the business out to bid. And in a recessionary environment where FedEx and UPS have trucks and planes that are empty, they were starting to give our service away for free so that they could get freight into their trucks and planes and would offer them with their, with their cash balances of being public companies, they would offer them 60, 90 day terms to pay, which would be crippling to, to us. Um, and even if clients would come to us and say, we love you guys, but hand us the quote and say, what am I supposed to do? I mean, it's half your price. It's in some cases, it was a 10th of our price. Uh, and in a lot of cases we, would just say, okay, and we cut our fee and match it or come close and they would stay with us. But mm. if the margin was thin before, now it's almost non-existent. And, and it's a race to and, the bottom. And you get into this survival mode of we have to do whatever we have to do to keep it. Um, I was a lot younger and uh, had not, a lot, not as much experience to say, to, to figure out what was worth saying yes to and no to. Um, I think you get on a we then got on a big kick of how do we cut our costs to try to keep track of it. And it is a, it's a double race to the bottom. Okay. Um, and when this all started happening, I mean, was there a definitive client? Was there a moment or was it like this general movement towards cost cutting and cutting you out? Like, do you it remember the visceral time? Well, the, the, the sort of a trigger point was, was one of our biggest clients was Michelin Tire Company. And they moved from New York, where our headquarters were, and we had worked with them forever, and they moved to um, South Carolina and felt, rightly or wrongly, that they should probably have somebody local to represent them. And so we fought for that business and lost it. And so that was a, that was a large hit, unrelated to anything. Um, and then the rest was death by a thousand cuts. It was one client at a time coming to us and saying, we got this quote, or our business is really struggling. Your fee costs us this much per year. Can you do something for us? Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, candidly, I think that I, I became very, very good about trying to save the client and to cut our costs and did not focus as much as I should have on going out and getting new business and, and figuring out a way for us to uh, claim someplace in the market that wasn't so time sensitive. And in fact, the, the, the way that we brought the business back was by getting out of, of more commodity type businesses. Can you unpack that for me? So I, I actually, when, when times got really, really bad, I reached out uh, to somebody I trusted and asked for a referral to 
uh, oddly enough, a turnaround consultant, which was sort of the inspiration for me doing a lot of the work that I do. Yeah. Um, and, and he asked me some really important questions around the clients that we, that love us. Why do they, and, and don't argue about fees. What's, what's the, what's the common theme? And the common theme was that they, the, the goods that they imported were either time sensitive or very high value so that the service mattered more to them than the price. And so that sparked a suggestion about, okay, what industries ship high value and time sensitive goods where they don't care about the price, but it better be there when it's supposed to be there. Hmm. Uh, and that led us down an interesting path of, uh, I, I acquired a small company that was in the fine art transport business. So hmm. that filled that thing. Uh, we then acquired a, a small company in California that did transportation for the film and entertainment industry. So we moved, uh, the goods for uh, movie movie sets that they're going to film Jurassic Park in uh, in Hawaii. We shipped everything there. Shipped everything back. They could care less about. Uh, and just to give you an order of magnitude, the profit margins went from our normal six percent to thirty thirty five percent. We then acquired a small company in San Francisco that shipped classic automobiles. Somebody buys a car at an auction, or they're going to race it in the Giro d'Italia we would handle the whole thing. Nobody cares what the service fee is, but it better be there and it better have its wheels intact and no dents on it. Um, and so that really started to help us of having some focus uh, around not we're all things to all people, but if you care about service, if you have something that's time sensitive or of very high value, then we're really the only people you should be talking to. If if you are, uh, and there's many, importing goods where five cents or 10 cents or a dollar makes a difference to your sales price, you should go use somebody else, which is hard for any business person to turn business away. But, but finding that line and, and getting a better understanding of who we are, why people should use us and, and, and what we were as a company, which was always one that was very, very sensitive to uh, our service level. Uh, where the FedExes and UPSs are massive machines that can just turn the crank and process a million shipments in a night. Um, mm. That was super helpful in making me feel like, okay, we have some control over our destiny now. We're not just trying to uh, push, back the, push back the ocean. Um, there's a few things I want to unpack there. Um, just in our so far short conversation, the theme that has come up uh, twice, kind of, is being everything to everyone. First, you mentioned you weren't, you were too big to be small and too small to be big, which means you're kind of wavering in the middle. And then mentioning, you know, going niche is a good thing, actually, when you started getting rid of all the fluff and cutting out all the clients. And it is, it's such a difficult thing to actually turn around to your team who've been selling to those clients, to the clients themselves and actually going, hold on, you just don't fit with us anymore. So was there some pain in that process of shifting from everything to everybody to this specific thing and okay what happens next right it's definitely pain i think everybody even you know even my clients now this idea of turning away business or even firing a client is massively massively difficult but there there is um once you set on a strategy there is it's critically important to say okay i'm going to have 
in order for me to get to the other side here, I'm going to have mm. to go through some pain. I'm choosing mm. to go through this pain to come out the other side. Uh, yeah. Because I know that even though I know this pain, even though this pain has become comfortable for me, it's not sustainable. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I now sort of had in my brain these sort of three steps, which is don't lie about who you are, find the awesome in what you do, and then, and only then, be relentless building some momentum around it. And mm -hmm. so the first key piece is that don't lie about who you are. There was an old joke in our industry that if you ask a custom broker, what is two plus two, they'll say, what would you like it to be? And this idea of <laughs> what you just tell us what you want to do, we'll tell you that we'll do it, just please hire us. And mm -hmm. that, um, that has to go in order for you to have a business that has identity, that is able to walk into a sales call and say, this is who we are, this is who we should care. Also from even targeting who your client should be, we went from, we used to have this book of, there was a giant book that was published every year of all the importers in the United States. It is a four inch thick book in tiny, tiny print with, you know, and everybody in that, in theory, everybody in that book when our original business model Everybody in that book could be a client. And when we decided this is who we are and this is who we serve best, that list got a lot easier. Now we're mm. looking for precious metals. Now we're looking for people who are shipping $10,000 blouses in high fashion. Now we're looking for people who are in industries that make sense. And you can quickly say, this is somebody who should be working with us. And we just have to tell them that we're here as opposed to, I know 25 people call you every week, but we're the ones you should like. And then um, what does that is, conversation come down to? Price only. Yep. And then you're screwed. And this, I've been saying this for a while, and it's something that is very hard to understand when you're starting a business and trying to gain traction. But niche doesn't mean small. Niche means specific. And it's so important to understand a specific customer because there's, like you said, a four inch thick book with tiny writing. If you niche down, you still got thousands of customers, but now they're the right customer. And it's such an important lesson to learn. And it's such a difficult one to learn on the job. Oh, and when, and when we had it, I, you know, that was our Bible. We would just hand this book to our new salespeople and say, you know, call Knock whoever you like. <laughs> call whoever you like. Look, look at all these people. How could you oh, not win when you great. have all these people? Um, okay, quickly, I want to talk about um, your team and the, the key players in the business now at this point. So you've got 150, give or take, employees. You've got a management team. You've got a board. I imagine you've got all these formal things and the wheels are starting to fall off. So how do the people around you start responding? Uh, is there panic? Uh, how, how's your leadership style? Like all of these EQ things I'm interested in because a lot of founders struggle with that because you are in this tornado as a human, never mind the people around you. Right, rightly wrong. So we're a private company, so no board. Um, okay. But I had a really great management team and I had a very good relationship with, um, became friends with, with them, I think, in, in some way. Um, and I would admit that, that my rightly or wrongly, my choice was to, uh, keep it to myself as much as I could. I think they felt some stress, but they didn't see what was happening to the bottom line. They would just see that we changed our prices. Uh, we'd win some business, but we were winning it at lower margins. Um, and I mostly kept it to myself and, um, uh, didn't do good things for my 
social life, didn't good do things for my psyche or my sleep, but I just felt um, that as loyal as people may be, if they feel that the ship, uh, the ship is sinking, that they will look to see what other ships are out there that they might jump to. And uh, the one thing that I didn't want to add to all of it was, was a talent drain. Uh, people have a lot of good client relationships in that industry. They leave and they take a couple of clients that they're friendly with with them. So uh, I, I basically kept it to myself as best I could. And do you think that was the right decision looking back on it? Um, I, I do. Um, I think there's other ways that I could have I've done it. I think that what I, rather than soldiering it alone, I think there could have been a way, and if I was doing it again, which is a you know a, 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 an evil game that I still twenty five years later still play with myself, um, I I would have sat down with everybody. Sort of, it's just to take a step back a second. Mm. Looking back on it, we we would have survived much better and actually probably thrived had I shrunk us down from six offices to just the two that were making the bulk of our money. The 80-20 rule applied to 80, you know, 20% of our offices were making 80% of our revenue and profit. And the other offices were really there for ego and pride. Uh, and the, the thinking at the time was, what would our competitors think if they saw us shrink from six offices to two? And I am a big proponent of stop caring what your competitors think because they're not paying your bills and they never will. And uh, in, in hindsight, we could have become small and nimble. We could have become this, this boutique, cool uh, agency for people with high value goods and time sensitive goods that had two offices that made a ton of money. And I would have, my income would have gone way up and it would have been easier to manage. Uh, and the only thing that blocked me from that was my ego and my pride. How old were you I, at the time? I was, this all happened from when I was 29 to when I was 33. So I was yeah. young, uh, full it's of ego vigor, years. fire, ready to take on the world, thought I had every answer to every problem. Uh, I knew best and I could just out, hustle and out that whole hustle and grind thing and all of that. And, uh, and so it, to go back to the original question, if I had sat down with our team and said, this is the situation, uh, but rather than, okay, let's panic. Look what happens if we shrink down to two offices, look mm. what it means for all of us. Look at what we'll create. Who cares what our competitors say, because we're just going to do our own thing. Mm -hmm. I would have been able to present to them a path to more prosperity and opportunity for them as opposed to, oh my God, things are going really bad. I'm not sure how we're going to fix it. And, uh, and, that, and that was how I saw that playing out at the time and how I thought that things would, would end with them saying, that's great. Love you, Howard, but Peace. I got family. I got bills to pay. I'll see you. Yeah. Um, and at this time, who who was helping you, like advising you on these decisions? Uh, you, you mentioned you brought in a turnaround expert, but outside of that, did you have mentors, advisors, friends, colleagues? Like who was helping you or were you alone every night dealing with this? 
So I, w I was a member since I was in maybe 28 of an organization called YPO, which is the Young Presidents Organization. Uh, and I had what, what as part of being in the YPO chapter, there's also uh, EO, which is Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a, a, a similar structure where I had a, a, a monthly private board of directors, so to speak, of I think we were about 10 other members that we would meet under strict confidentiality once a month. And, and, and you grow very close to these people. I, they were, became some of my closest friends and, and I could talk to them about it without any worry about it leaking out or, mm. um, and there were people that I trusted who all owned businesses of similar sizes to me and uh, who knew me for years. Uh, so that was a very, very big help during that time. And then I had this, uh, this uh, turnaround consultant who also became a good friend and a very trusted counselor. I really, I needed somebody who would just call me out on my bullshit and who would tell it to me straight. And I told them that from our first call, I didn't want somebody who was just going to tell me to buy low and sell high or vice versa. And, and to, to tell me when I was lying to myself or, or what, you know, tell me what I needed to hear. And so he was immensely, immensely helpful in just holding a mirror up and saying, you know, you keep telling me it's going to, this office is going to do better or this thing is going to happen and that's going to happen and it's not happening. So what are we doing? Very interesting. And um, how did your team react to bringing in a turnaround consultant? Uh, he he's he was a super interesting guy. I think they actually liked it. They he sat with each of them individually as part of the first part of his process, and he was very uh, energizing and very motivating guy. And so I I was always when the, he came the first day and sat down with each of them. Each of them came out of that meeting sort of energized and recharged. I think it created some sense of, I've done this for 40 years. You guys are not in the, I remember our first conversation. He's like, do you all, you have all your fingers and toes? And he said, then we'll, you know, we'll figure this out. Uh, and, and so I think he brought some sense of, you guys are not in the kind of shape that I usually walk into when there's 30 days left. Uh, hmm. we'll, we'll figure this out. Um, and sort of challenging each of them, are you doing all you can do to really help? How do you feel you could help? Uh, and it sort of re-energized everybody a little bit. So um, it was helpful, even if difficult for me to eventually admit that I needed some help and that I couldn't do it all myself. When I finally did, that's when everything started to change. That's exactly what my next question was going to be is how bad did it get before your ego allowed you to ask for help and bring someone in to actually kind of do what you you should be doing at that time horrible i i had I, i've said this before i you know i lost my smile i was somebody who was always upbeat and smile and whatever and i had lost my smile the weekends were torture for me this is in the ages before really before email in any major way before a lot of people had cell phones that weren't just strapped to their car so you had an entire weekend where i was helpless of not being able wow. to be in the battle of nothing to wow, do except is, wait for Monday morning. That is a morning. crazy thing. That is a crazy right. thing. Like we so take it the, for granted now that our oh, emails can fire and you can solve problems all day. Back in the day, Friday comes, everybody goes home. You wait till Monday. Over. I couldn't wait wow. till Monday morning where I could get in and start making phone calls and do anything. You just, the whole weekend was just sort of as if, you know, that like the robot that like goes and sits and powers down in the corner. That was me just, just sitting there wow. waiting to be to get back in the battle on Monday morning. 
uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nobody to reach out to. There's nobody to email. I mean, we're still we were still getting faxes, you know, most of the time. <laughs> so uh, it, it it wasn't as conducive to feeling that you're at least in action. Mm. Um, and and it took uh, it took to be till I was really really down and 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 despondent in some ways uh, that nothing seemed to be working. And uh, I don't know what was it caused me to like a year or two after this started that you got the consultant. Oh, I would say a good two to three years before I felt oh, so wow. defeated that I felt that I should reach out and ask for help. And and at that that particular dynamic is something that I have uh, thought about because it's something that I I see with my clients over the last twenty two years. And the same question that I ask myself, why does it take people so long? Why do they have to endure so much pain before they will raise their hand and ask for help? Why is asking for help seems as such a weakness? I mean, you see it now with, with there's such a focus on mental health and, and that it's not a stigma and it's not bad to ask for help. It's not bad to talk to a therapist. It's not bad to, to reach out and tell people that you care about, that you're struggling. 20 some odd years ago, it's even more unheard of. So it, it is, I always question why I didn't, I wish that I did it sooner. Why didn't I do it sooner? I think the biggest regret was not saying, I don't have all the answers here. I don't like how things are going. I should have somebody to talk to. Uh, mm. I need to tell somebody what's going on and get somebody else's perspective because I'm like I, I like I say in, in in my book, you know, that it's hard to read the label from inside the bottle. That this sort of being trapped in a hurricane is very hard to make decisions. It's very hard to to get some clear perspective because everything, every decision is emotional. This was my business. There was no separation between if the business was going bad, my life was going bad. If business was bad, I was bad. So th there's, there has to be some way to, to get somebody who says, hang on, there's you, Howard, as the person. I, not that I'm talking about myself like a third person or something. I hate that. But I think it's um, kind of cool. You do, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's, there's the business. And, and how, do you, how do you get some separation to be able to look at the business objectively and say, who cares? Is this going to make me look bad if we shrink? Is it going to make me look bad if the business goes away? Or is it just this is a business that needs to be tracked? And when I go in to sit with clients, I think half the battle is that I'm not emotionally connected to the business. That each or to decision, the outcome of that sale. Yeah. That each, yeah. each decision that, that gets made doesn't make me feel like I am a failure personally and that mm. I have failed and that each decision is going to hurt me. Uh, and, and to have someone, not to be cold about it, but to, to, to break somebody out of the fact that their, their psyche and their, their sense of self are completely intertwined with their business and, and its rise or fall. Yep. There's so much there that I resonate with. Uh, firstly, I quote you almost weekly on, you can't read the label from inside your own bottle. And I reference you too. Uh, secondly, if you're listening to this and you haven't bought Howard's book, you absolutely should. Uh, your Business Brickyard, I think it's called. Your Business Brickyard, uh, right. I, I'm a fan. I read it, loved it. Um, and you have a podcast. I'm not sure if you're still pushing those out, but go find that. We'll link it in the show notes. 
Um, but I think the the things that I want to highlight there is your self-worth cannot be pegged to the successful outcome of your business. Those things are separate. And it's, I mean, I've, I've been building businesses since I was 16. So I have self-identified as an entrepreneur for as long as I can remember. My formative years were I'm an entrepreneur. And for the last two years, I haven't been building a business. My identity has been broken for two years. I've been trying to rebuild. Who are you without a team, without staff, without profit, without growth? And right. it's overwhelming and it's scary. And the second thing is it's important for us as business owners to understand that this narrative of business, good businesses only go up, they only grow, is absolutely batshit crazy. Good businesses weather the storm. They understand that things go bad. They understand that profits might not be there every month, every year, every quarter. I hate this concept of growth for the sake of growth. And it is this tech revolution that's come around that has made us believe that the only kind of growth is 10% compounding per day, every day. That's just not the way it works. Like if yeah. we sell that narrative to founders, they're going to feel like failures all the time. You know, it's I, I don't mean this as a shameless plug, but it, that that I'm about like, to launch a new book, and it is, it, and and it's the core thesis is right around this because it's 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 around figuring out what is enough for you. That there is this this in, in an entrepreneur space and even in business that you are either growing or you're dying. I think that's you know like people say that all the time, and. I have said to clients, do you would you want to have a fifty million dollar business that makes a million dollars in profit or a four million dollar business that makes three million dollars in profit? And that seems like a simple question. It isn't. Plenty <laughs> of entrepreneurs want the fifty million dollar business. They want the sixty million dollar business. yeah, and 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 if you take my old business, did I like saying we have $150 million revenue? It was a bit of a, it's a bit of a fake of a number. It, that's a, it's a puff your chest out kind of number. Mm -hmm. But would I, would I have wanted to shrink down to having a, a $6 million business that made $2 million in profit and that was off the radar? Nobody knew about it except for the people that needed to know about it. And we all had a good time either. working there and I made a really nice life and I, my stress mm -hmm. level went from a 90 to a 60. And who was I trying to please? Yep. Yep. This, this question, it plagues me. And I think having been building businesses for as, as long as you, I mean, not as long as you have, but long enough, it is, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an age thing. In my twenties, I wanted bigger headcount, top line revenue. And as I've gotten older, I want, like you've said, to slide under the radar, have significant profit and have nobody bother me. I want to have the freedom to say no to clients that piss me off. Like right. that's the kind of business right. you want. But it's a right. very hard thing to do when you're in the bottle and you can't read your label and the bottle is on fire around you. It's really hard. It is. But there's also this this current narrative that that business is supposed to be hard. You are supposed to yeah. suffer for a certain number of years to get yeah. to where you want to get to. Yeah. And I have, you know, it, it, in retrospect, that was all wrong. Yeah. I, I tell the story at the start of my book about this, uh, that somebody asked me to go meet this, uh, uh, a couple who was planning on retiring and wanted to sell their business in an industry that had passed them by and their business was worth zero. They couldn't sell it. So okay. they had spent this their whole life toiling away, working, 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 
in the hopes that someday they would sell their business and get retirement. And that day never came. So how many years, how many decades do you want to sacrifice under this idea of hustle and grind and you're supposed to be suffering for your for for this someday that may never come. Mm -hmm. How many businesses tried to build themselves up and then stuff out of their control, a housing crash, COVID shutting down. How many restaurants built up their whole empire? How, you know, how yeah. many gym franchises built up their own franchises only to be told that you have to shut your business down? That that if you haven't figured out wait a minute, life is short, not, not in any sort of, you know, we're all going to start to meditate in a minute, mm. but in a, like, I should enjoy this journey. Are there going to be moments that are hard? Absolutely. Are there going to be trying times in your business? Absolutely. But if I don't have some level of enjoying the journey and enjoying the ride, I've made a huge mistake. I'm going to waste decades with a business that could fail for reasons that have nothing to do with me. And I have to start over again. And this idea of growth just for the sake of growth, there's this great quote by Ricardo Semler who says there are only two things that grow for the sake of growth, businesses and tumors. And, and that's the, wow, the, that's good. The, the, this idea of we just have to grow. We have to grow 20% this year. And then on January 1st, we're going to do it all over again and try to add another 20% is not looking at the bigger picture of strategy. It's not looking at the bigger arc of life. It's not mm -hmm. giving you the, the opportunity to say, where do I actually want to go? What kind of life, what kind of, not how do I want to give my life to the business, but what kind of life do I want the business to give to me? Do I want 10 houses in a private jet? Then, okay, then go for hyper growth. Do I want to, if, if you stop and figure out what do I want the business to give to my life? How do, what kind of life do I want the business to give to me? If we're going to own a business, if we're going to be in charge and, and, ha and be an entrepreneur in the way that I like to think about an entrepreneur, which is I own and operate a business that is going to create a life for me and the people who care about my business and going to do a little, some good in the world in some way or be a, an expression of, of, of our craft, whatever that may be, whether you're an accountant, a lawyer, or you're making art, uh, then, then I have to figure, I have to stop and figure out what is my enough hmm. and how do I model my business and create my business so that it gives me the life that I want. Because then the way that we feel about our business is very different. This business now is, is not something that is sucking the life out of me, but it's something that is giving me the life that I want and is it a way for me to play and is giving me the freedom that I get from owning it. You know, there, there is a risk reward piece to owning a business that is meant to be that all this risk is going to turn into some windfall reward instead of the reward could be, I get to take two months off every year, or I get to travel the world, or I get this beautiful house on the beach that I always wanted to have. And I get to have it all the way through my journey, not just only if I sort of scratch and claw and make it to the finish line. And I think that mm. conversation is not had enough. It, it's more of, did you see the Instagram guys who have 12 people and they got sold for a, a billion dollars or this guy who raised this money or these guys who, you know, got to $50 million in revenue. Th those are, you know, the, trying to be a unicorn is, is not a, 
for most people is not a fulfilling journey. And yet that's, that's what people are reading about and emulating. That's what an entrepreneur has become. Yep. It is I feel, this. I feel um, like I should say thank you for coming to my TED talk at the end of that. But no, but, but I mean, that's... I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's kind of the point of why I'm speaking with people like you, because I've had similar experiences throughout my entire life is it's this unspoken like thing. There's a couple of things here. Uh, the first is uh, I don't have kids, but every person I meet is like, oh, you should have kids. It's the best thing in the world. But then you have kids and those same people are like, jokes i haven't slept in six years it's horrible screw you and it's very similar being an entrepreneur every entrepreneur will say to you it's the best thing you own your time you're your own boss you make tons of money it's amazing you go on holiday whenever you want and then when you start your own business they commiserate and they're like ha sucker come join me when we don't sleep we don't eat properly we don't exercise we don't get holidays we don't get weekends we don't pay ourselves a salary and there isn't any profit and this is kind of the thing that we, we think as entrepreneurs is um, this beautiful joy of owning your business. And we mock salaried employees that they're waiting for retirement. We're doing the same thing, waiting for the big payday. And then it doesn't come. And yep. then what do you do? You're yep. unemployable. You have no big payday. You need to go and get a job and you can't have a boss. It's, it's a big thing. So your TED Talk, as much as it was brief on this podcast, was relevant. And I think <laughs> that uh, your book is going to be perfectly timed because the great resignation we're seeing around the world is coming with these right. sort of reflections on, well, what is success to me? What do I want out of life? Do I want a business with a thousand headcount? I hate the word headcount. It makes people things instead of humans. Yep. Yep. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a relevant conversation, but I want to take, is. And, and, yeah, and go I ahead, go ahead. There, there, there's just to pick up on what you said, there's mm. a, when you, when that, when you're in that moment of saying, I'm going to start a business because I want to have time off and I want to like those, those thoughts are not that, that is not usually built into the business plan. It's not <laughs> built into the strategic <laughs> ideas of the business. It's yeah. this wish that's going to come someday. But, but if people sat down and said, hang on, if I, was, if I parked my business to the side and I said, what kind of life do I want to have? Now, what do I need to do with my business to have that life? It, it will force decisions that may go against this idea of growth at all costs, but it may allow you to create a business that fuels your life. 100%. I mean, just that simple reframe. Imagine putting into your VC's pitch deck that you want more free time, a bigger salary, and you want to take a vacation a month every year. They'd be like, no, thank you, moving on. And that's great because that means you're not a VC business and you should never right. build a VC-backed business. You should build a sustainable, profitable enterprise, which a zebra startup instead of a unicorn startup. Like, that's right. the idea. Um so I want to jump back to you're now in this, you're three years deep, things have gone badly. How does this affect your personal life? Uh, do you have a wife and kids at this point? Do, what are your friends doing? Like, how does this feel day to day for that period? I, I was single at the time. I could not date. I mean, I try, but my mind was preoccupied. Mm -hmm. I was forever jumping on an airplane to go put out a fire somewhere. Um, and I could not, uh, I, I was, and, and even when I would hang out with my friends, uh, I wasn't a lot of fun to be around. Uh, and almost the only thing that I could find myself to talk about was my business woes. Uh, and I, I, there was no way that I could figure out about how to separate it and to have 
a personal life. It wasn't only until after we sold the business in, in January of 2000 that I actually was able to take the time to decompress, to sort of reset. And uh, that is when I actually wound up, I'm surely not, not coincidentally, wound up meeting somebody and getting married uh, and, and starting a family. Um, but it took, that was two years later of me just trying to make sense of everything that had happened and what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, I imagine your mental health took a huge dive and back then it wasn't really a conversation you had with people, this mental health thing. No, I, 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 and, and also, you know, I, I'm sure that I was, I was, I was depressed in some ways and, and as probably anybody who's struggled with this, you don't, you know, all of a sudden wind up depressed. There was no in, one shock to the system that made me sad. Um, it is this slow, gradual decline that is so gradual that you don't sort of realize that you are in a hundred foot pit until you, until somebody tells you. It right? just so it took, somebody, you, right? took somebody saying, you know, saying to me, you don't smile anymore. Like it took some sort of a jolt to me because I was, I was Mr. Comedy and Mr. Jokes and Mr. This and That. Uh, and so for somebody to say that to me was, was a big bucket of cold water in my face that, yeah. that, that I had actually been on this descent that I didn't even realize. I just figured that I was just, this is what you do owning a business. You fight the fight um, and you don't think about what it does to you. You just keep fighting the fight and hope that there's, a, there's, a, some, there's a, some end to this tunnel. And mm. um, I, looking back on it, I mean, I can't imagine. I must have been the world's worst date if I ever went out on a date with anybody. I was uh, mopey and uh, my mind was elsewhere. And all I wanted to do was just keep getting back into the fight and had no way to separate any of it. And so, I, you know, the other side of that, and, and I think there's lots of people who could probably relate to this. I mean, I, I lost four or five very important years of my life to this. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you have to come to some peace with not having regret, but, but, uh, but, but it's hard not to realize that, that I, what it cost. Yep. Yep. I know the feeling intimately. Um, so at the time when things were great, 140 million at your peak and then the decline, when you got in the turnaround consultant, how did the revenues drop half? 50%, 40%, 30%? No, um, I think we probably went from, from probably 150 to 140 on the top line. Um, but that little bump with thin margins, all of a sudden you're losing a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. And that's, that's not sustainable yeah. when you, you, you know, that, that creates a hole somewhere, even if cash flow can cover it up for a while. Uh, when there's a lot of cash floating around, it can sort of co cover over it. But, um, we were able to get to the point by switching to these within 14, 15 months of sort of switching strategies, wow. we were able to get back over break even, um, with a probably went from 150 to 140. Um, but the fact that the margins increased is what made the difference. The fact that we were doing business at 35% margin instead of six, seven or eight, um, took the pressure off of, you could just do so much less uh, and do it better than just being a factory. Uh, and uh, that is what got us to that point. I, I ultimately didn't feel that, that 
it was so sustainable. Um, we just had leases, long-term leases and, and, and uh, expenses in the business that made it, that made sense to sell. And I also, mm -hmm. selling was sort of a way for me to just get my life back. I was 33. I had a lot of things I wanted to do. I felt a commitment to get the business to the point where it could be sold. And then I felt really strongly that I, I needed to go do, I needed to go have a life. Interesting. So it was a uh, very calculated turnover expert comes in, you guys niche down, um, you start to break even, get a little bit profit, increase the margins, you've got assets in your leases. And then at some point, did you consciously go, it's time to sell? Or was it like the consultant helping you do that? Like, how did you actually come to that decision that now's so, the time? Because releasing we, we, these businesses is the hard part for a lot of founders. Yeah, it was it was a weird set of circumstances. I got, one day I got a letter from, we had, we had made, I, I say acquisitions, but they were basically sort of for zero dollars as we didn't have any to spend. We sort of brought these people into our business who were also struggling during the recession and gave them a cheaper home to operate in. Mm -hmm. um, and then one day I got a letter from a, a, a large investment bank that was offering a company for sale that is sort of the premier logistics company in the rock and roll and entertainment industry. Like if, it, huh. if Metallica was going on tour, this is who moved them, right? Right up our alley, right. And, and I only got mm -hmm. that letter because people started to know that we were in this niche. Amazing. Uh, and when I looked at it, I thought, you know, I, we don't have any money to do this. And for whatever you know, naive young youth reason, I said, okay, let's keep talking. Uh, and we wound up talking to them, agreeing on a price. I got along really well with the founder and their executive team. It, the fit was really, they had offices everywhere we did. There was all of this synergy stuff that people talk about. But now I needed to go find $2 million for the down payment. And so I embarked on this journey bouncing around uh, sort of Goldilocks thing of going to uh, private equity people and funds and asking for money with a balance sheet that was just almost laughable. But I, I just kept going. And, and somebody said, not for us, but you should talk to this person. Not for us, you should talk to this person. And somehow I stumbled into a fund that was exactly looking for deals of this size, somehow got comfortable with our balance sheet believed in the plan that this would actually completely transform the company. If we had been able to pull this off, it would have made the leap to this completely boutique agency. And I just felt if this doesn't come to pass, then we should sell. And so I had a very clear picture in my mind because people had approached us to acquire us in this time. Everybody, it was, it was, there was a lot of acquisition going on and, and uh, consolidation going on in the industry. And I said, we either do this deal and transform or we'll sell and, and I'm out. Uh, and in the 11th and a half hour, the founder decided, sort of had seller's remorse and decided they didn't want to sell. And the next day I called uh, somebody who had been interested in inquiring us. We had an offer sheet in three weeks and we sold five months later. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, good on you for having the uh, guts to stick to that decision because it is, it's a really difficult thing. I mean, I was, I was in a similar position with the retail business that I had that it was, it's brutal. You attach your identity to this thing and you think you can save it. No matter what's going on, you think you've got the tools, you will make this work. 
when actually it's probably dead three years ago and you should have walked away and like yeah. you said, gotten your life back because you're young and you've got opportunity and you've got ideas and you're good at whatever it is you're doing. But I became, I became an expert. I remember our CFO said to me one time, he'd never seen anybody stretch a dollar or figure out. I mean, <laughs> I, I, yes, we were dead probably three years earlier. And, and I came up with every kind of move and strategy to keep us alive that you could pr practically ever think of. And that became an expertise. Instead of growing the business, I just became good at, at uh, how to keep the patient alive. And that's not, that's not sustainable. At some point, it's going to catch up with you. And, and, that, and I felt that if we did this deal, that I would have escaped it. And if we didn't, that it was about to catch up to the bank was getting very, very un, un, unhappy and unsettled. It's always with the us. bank. Uh, putting a tremendous amount of pressure on us daily, screaming at me on the phone. Uh, and, and I just, I had to, I had to give them something. I said, we're either going to do this deal and then it'll take the pressure off. And, and if we're not, then we'll sell and you'll get your money back and stop yelling at me. <laughs> please, please stop yelling at me. Please stop yelling at me. I, um, I'm already in a fragile state. Please stop yelling yeah. at me. <laughs> um, okay. So what, um, what do you think? Uh, I've just heard that you learned how to stretch a dollar, but what do you think that, that this experience taught you about how you wanted to go forward, what you wanted to build and how you wanted to build those things? I felt that I, you know, I had, I had a period of time where I was like, okay, that was awful. It seemed important to me to figure out that there had to be a point to going through that. That it, don't tell me that there was no point to this. <laughs> and I started to reflect on what did I learn? What do I wish that I knew? Um, what was the point? Mm -hmm. And back in the, those days, this was 2001 or so, that blogging had just started. Mm. Uh, and through weird circumstance, um, I met Hugh McLeod, who was very popular at the time with a blog called Gaping Void, and mm -hmm. he started a uh, an email exchange with me about what do you wish you knew? What you know? What do you? I was just looking for uh, somebody to help me sort of think through my thoughts, and he kept pushing. I kept writing because that's how I would do it back then. Very corporate answers about strategy or this and that, and he kept pushing me and pushing me, and then finally I got so frustrated. I just had like a screed of of people don't know this, and business is this, blah, blah, blah. and he said, that's your first blog post. And I said, I don't want to have a blog just because it's the thing that everybody's doing. <laughs> yeah. And he said, don't do it for that. Just do it for yourself. Do it as a way mm. to put your thoughts out there just for you to process your thoughts in this open way. And who cares if anybody shows up? Mm. And it turned out people showed up because there were, there were 20 blogs and we all got to know each other. Mm. Um, our mutual friend, Rich Mulholland, that's how we met through the blog. That blog turned into my book in, in most ways. Um, and it became a way for me to process what to make some point out of going through that. And, and I ultimately landed on lots of business owners are suffering in silence and don't know what to do who are stuck inside the bottle. And if I could come up with a way to help those business owners suffer less, to change their thinking to read the label on the outside of the bottle to beat the hell out of that analogy uh that would be worthy work and that would make those years worth something that there was value in going through the trial by fire and that i could i could take all of that and one by one through book writing turnaround work coaching 
advising, whatever it is that, that each business owner needed to, for, to hold that mirror up and to be um, that person who would lock elbows with them and get them out of this hole, um, that felt like worthy work. And it, and it has been. I haven't had any desire to have employees again. I haven't had any desire to, to have a business that I couldn't adjust and pivot and switch on a dime because I had long leases or anything like that. Um, I have been the interim CEO of companies from time to time um, where I had some of that, but never wanted that for myself again, uh, but have felt really good that there are, there are a few dozen businesses that exist today and that are fulfilling to their owners because they asked for help and that I was able to take all that I learned and all that I have worked on since then and bring it to them. And, and so that has brought me some peace uh, around what those hard times were for. I think that is a fantastic endeavor for any entrepreneur to be able to say that they've helped other businesses survive and ask for help. So... In my final segue to ask you to tell my listeners and viewers where they can find you, if you are an entrepreneur and you need help, don't be scared to ask for it. We've all been where you are. We've all suffered. I lost my hair because of it. Um, this is this is the journey. This is the trip. So, Howard, if people want to get in touch with you, ask you for help, or just get to know your writing, your blogs, your whatever, where can they find you? Very simple. It's howardman.com. Howardman man with two ends. Uh, and I'm Howard Mann on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and whatever else you want to find. Uh, and on my website, there is a newsletter. You can actually get a PDF of my book when you join the newsletter, uh, 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 my first book. And uh, the podcast is there and links to all the socials is all there at howardman.com. Amazing. Howard, thank you for your time. This has been illuminating. I've learned so much and I hope that people listening and watching have too. Thanks for having me. It's always great to chat with you.